were checking CNN. Well, okay, realistically, this is like a week ago that we were checking CNN at this point. But just as we always do every day, we got to see what's going on on CNN.com. Yeah, the news. And uh, we found the, yeah, the the most, uh, American Airport's most reliable source of news. Mm-hmm. But um, we uh, saw this article, Meet the Man Behind Some of the Best Questions on Twitter. You'll never believe who it is. <laughs> Jamie Sweaty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. It's Tom. What would you do if I was there right now? It's yep. Tom. It's the closest thing to Tom, though. Of course, Eric Alper, Tom's great friend. Yeah. Collaborator. But this is an amazing article. I mean, it's got the requisite amount of typos for something that was just slapped together and thrown on CNN online really quickly. Yes. Um, At the request of him, for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, he definitely solicited this media. It's so, like, kid gloves and just... Like, there's there's basically no story here. The story is he asked questions on Twitter. That's it. They didn't even, like, peg yeah, it Yeah, the to story anything. is that there is a guy named Alper, Eric Alper, and he has a Twitter account where he asks questions about stuff. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, it sucks. <laughs> well, you could say that he asks questions about stuff, or you could say he spends a good part of his day sparking conversation by crafting questions like, what opening lyric of a song gives you chills? <laughs> He's a conversation starter. He's a rem- he, is, uh, he is North America's great rememberer. Yeah. <laughs> it reminds me of 2010 Twitter media, like shit my dad says. Oh, totally. That kind of thing, where someone would have an account that just had a theme. That's all you needed. Mm-hmm. If you had a theme for it and you had 2,000 followers, you would get a bunch of interviews about it. You would get a TV show. You would get a book. But to do this now, it feels so forced. It really does. Especially like the... Uh... The demographic that he's going for, I think their brains are soft enough that that it it's pretty. I think this is pretty easy for him, right? Like, but the end game is so unclear still, because like at least like shit, my dad says it's like yeah, I'm trying to turn it into a TV show. With Eric Alper, it's like like we said in the episode about him, it's like yeah, I guess he's trying to like make it look good for his PR clients, but that's not a very exciting end game, you know. The- he's not trying to like become a big star really but then it's like who are his pr clients and like are does he just rep them in canada that's another question to ask well the answer that we had found in the previous episode was hootie and the blowfish i think like that caliber of legacy artist you know yeah 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 did we determine whether he was just repping them in canada or it was (laughs) cross i don't know because that's a that's a really um classic canadian music industry guy trick uh You'll meet somebody and you'll be like, oh, yeah, who do you represent? They'll be like, well, we represent uh, or I represent Incubus, uh, Shell Crow, um, I don't know, Three Doors Down. And you'd be like, oh, cool. And then you realize that they just represent them for Canada where their record label has licensed the album to like Warner Canada. And yeah. and their the scope of their interaction is like, those people do two days of Canadian press and uh, come and play Toronto and Vancouver, maybe. And that's it. Yeah, I represent the Beatles in Luxembourg. <laughs> yeah, totally. I represent Gary Glitter in Thailand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there we go. That'd probably be pretty lucrative. So let's read some of this sparkling prose. Yeah. this It's talking about how, you know, he generates 5,000 responses with his perfectly uh, worded questions. Mm-hmm. And it goes on like, sure, other Twitter accounts have more followers. Just within the entertainment sphere, for instance, comedian Ellen DeGeneres has 79 million followers compared to Alper's considerable but much smaller base of 750,000 tweeps. What is a tweep? Few, no idea. Is I that like supposed that to be a play a on creeps? Twitter peep. Oh, jeez, uh, wow. man. Okay. That's, yeah, again, 2010. Yikes. A few, if any, of Alper's tweets go viral, but the Toronto-born music enthusiast is perfectly fine with that. I know how to get popular on Twitter, and it is never even a consideration, he told CNN. Oh, I could totally have as many followers as Ellen DeGeneres. I just don't want to. Yeah, I have so much integrity. All I want to do is post pictures of the Beatles that say (laughs) Abbey Road, 1969, and uh, get thousands of likes for that. (laughs) Amassing a massive following is not Alper's intent. Instead, Bullshit. he said he's just trying to tap into a shared sense of nostalgia. 
wow. witnessed the 3,000 replies in less than 24 hours earned by his tweet asking which album we can objectively consider a masterpiece. And the answer is Michael Jackson's Off the Wall. No, not really. No, no, it's not. Or Manu Chow's Proxima Estacion Esperanza. I've never heard it, so it's probably not that good. Or is it Tapestry by Carol King? That's okay. It's a little drab. Yeah, agree. I, I wish I could hear him do a real interview about this, like trying to justify his position of how do you not see that as shameless, you know? Yeah, like it's almost like he needs to be renditioned and uh, MK altered, you know? So we get the real truth out of him. And he'll just be like, I wrote, I tell my assistants, ask the most obvious questions and I tell them to post them. We have them scheduled, you know? Yeah, exactly. What's one experiment the government performed on you? I'm worried people don't think I'm real. So uh, that my job in the music industry is real. So I need to bolster that. I need to make myself real with this game. It's not a grand experiment. It's not a way to scrape data. Just a really great way for people to keep talking. Oh, said. he's totally scraping data. That's it. There you go. Aha. Uh-huh. It's not very good data. It's just a <laughs> spreadsheet of a bunch of boomers and it says they like the Beatles. Yeah, and the, and Michael Jackson. They like stuff from when they were 16. There's an interesting fact in here. It's a parenthetical. The first record you ever bought for Alper, that was Great Balls of Fire by Jerry Lee Lewis. The year was 1978 and Alper was eight years old. <laughs> See, that's weird to me. That is weird. Yeah. That is weird. Or he'll ask his followers about the first concert they attended, Alper, ABBA in 1977 with his parents. It's actually amazing that they even got him to say what was the first album he bought, because when he posts these questions, he never answers his own questions. That's true. That's right. That's so odd that he saw ABBA and then a year later, he was like, I'm going to buy <laughs> he my bought first the record. Jerry Lee Lewis album. Great Balls of Fire by Jerry Lee Lewis. <laughs> Twitter can be, this is Ron Sexsmith talking about, um, Canadian singer-songwriter Ron Sexsmith talking about Eric Alper uh, and how it makes his day when fans reference him or one of his songs. In a response to a question from Alper on Twitter, Sexsmith says, Twitter can be an angry, unforgiving place, but Eric's Twitter feed is a force for good. Which I, I totally disagree. I look at, you know, I look at Eric's Twitter feed for too long, and I feel like a deep sense of um, depression, <laughs> like, and that, and that culture has like totally stagnated. Yeah, I think the most positive thing you could say is that it's a force for absolutely nothing. Yeah, it is a force for uh, entropy. Yeah, Ron Sexsmith. Ron Sexsmith, baby, beloved Canadian singer songwriter. It makes his day when someone references him. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, I looked up a picture of him and he just looks completely downcast. He, he looks like Eeyore. He looks like a very sad guy. <laughs> <laughs> and he just wants someone to mention him, I guess. He's name searching. He's admitting that to name searching, I think. Unless people are tagging him, in or it. unless he's such a he's such a big Alper fan that he's reading all of the thousands of replies to every one of uh, Alper's like asinine questions. I gotta be I gotta to. be in here somewhere, man. I gotta be in here somewhere. Come on. That's how I discovered Led Zeppelin. Looking at the replies to Eric Alper, finding new artists. Yeah, I think it's really amazing that. When it says that uh, Alper said some artists have even responded when they've been tagged, it's amazing that the biggest artist they can find who embodies that is Ron Sexsmith. I would love to have my day made by being mentioned in an Eric Alper tweet thread, but I can't check it because I'm blocked. So Yeah, are you sure he's really just trying to start conversations? Because uh, it seems like he doesn't want to converse with everybody. Yeah, it seems He's trying to stop conversations if you give him the slightest bit of pushback. <laughs> he's a tyrant. Yeah. Alper said his direct message inbox is full of people who say they check his account first thing in the morning or before going to bed at night because it's a place for positivity. Mm. And it's just Tom doing this. Tom is the only person DMing him like, oh, hey, man, I love your shit. Great job. Yeah, that's insane. He says the former record company executive, or, or not he says, the article says, it says he once worked for Ringo Starr. I wonder, which I think is what you were talking about, where it was the one time he was in Canada. Yeah, yeah. Ringo's people were like, um, 
Ringo wants to spend as little time in Canada as possible. He's going to play Toronto, and uh, that's it. So uh, let's get some uh, let's get some newspaper articles going. And uh, Eric got him on the phone. They bonded over their love of Jerry Lee Lewis's Great Balls of Fire, and the rest is history. Ooh, I like this too. And while he's naturally nostalgic for the 70s and 80s when he was growing up, he has an appreciation for current music too. Drake is there, Bruce Springsteen, he said about his younger followers. Ooh. Drake is more like their Jerry Lee Lewis. Yeah, I was going to say. You catch my drift. <laughs> really good at piano. Doing some interstate crimes. Interprovince. I know there were people who have never heard of Pink Floyd, as amazing as that sounds. Like Dan. Yeah, like me. Yeah. <laughs> there are 15-year-olds who have never heard of Nirvana. I don't think that's really true. Yeah, me neither. I think that's, uh, I don't know if it's just the shirts or like... Uh, Cycles of nostalgia, but I think that's pretty big with Zoomers. Yeah. yeah, they're one of the most durable rock bands. Yeah, we're on like the um, we're on like the second grunge revival now. Yeah, Zoomers love that. They're gonna bring flannel back again. Let's keep doing it. Why not? Why not? <laughs> There's the, we can't possibly come up with anything else, and Eric Alper is gonna make damn sure of that. Yeah. There's an element of joy. It's like when your favorite song is played on the radio or in the supermarket. Everyone can come to the table and share their preferences in a judgment-free zone. That seems kind of depressing if your favorite song is played at the supermarket. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Or maybe there's a supermarket that plays like My Bloody Valentine and I need to start shopping there. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm trying prob- to think. Like sometimes It's probably hear... super expensive. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I could think of like a song that would be my favorite song that I would hear at the grocery store. Oh, shit. I heard Wolf Parade at the grocery store once and I, it was embar- I was very <laughs> embarrassed. <laughs> That's awesome. Did you go was up it like to people a huge, and be like, you hear that? That's, was it like a huge chain? That's me. Or? <laughs> it's me. Uh, it was, uh, I think it was Gelson's in L. It was a grocery store in Los Angeles, like a more boutique grocery store. You should have gone up to the cashier like, am I getting royalties for this? <laughs> it was so cool. Can I, uh, I was going to say, if they play your song, the service desk. do you get a discount? Because uh, yeah. about... Six and a half minutes ago, they played. Uh, I recorded it here. Uh, this is from the store. <laughs> Go up to the service desk and ask them to turn the bass up. Yeah, totally. Can you let me? Uh, can you let me see the uh, EQ real quick? <laughs> you have a compressor on this. <laughs> so speaking of uh, boring retreads of the seventies. Van Morrison's been in the news. You hear about this, folks? He's got a he's got a new record. Uh, uh, some people are calling it uh, the Sandinista of our times. Yeah, the, uh, some people, in particular, the National Review. It's called Latest Record Project Volume One, and it's a two disc album that's mostly about him being betrayed by various people, including the government and uh, in they. With parentheses around it, mm-hmm. uh, people on Facebook, fake friends, family court, his ex-wife's uh, children that he has to pay child support to. Everybody is doing Van wrong. His therapist. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we should also mention right off the bat that the album's over two hours long, twenty-eight songs. Many of them, like you know, five minutes where they're just kind of plinking around on a little bluesy thing that's like i mean me and alex were saying like it's like it's i don't know it's like highway 61 revisited or something or maybe even like late period bob dylan where it's just like session musicians just like all right i'll just play a little organ lick here for five minutes while you uh ramble about facebook yeah but there's there's like no energy behind it it's it's just you're you're watching like uh you're watching like freshly squeezed at like the the Coveside Tavern or whatever, you know, it's just, it's just boomer. Yeah, you're right. I'm being harsh on Bob Dylan, where at least the musicians were engaged in doing those like sessions. <laughs> this is just, just so fucking cookie cutter. Yeah. Yeah. Every song is the same tempo. It's just a 12 bar blues, the same arrangements. Everything's the same volume. It's very easy to forget you're listening to it. And it's recorded very well, too. Mm-hmm. Like, it's pristine sounding and just very, very bland. Except for the lyrics, of course. The tones are 
firmly like in this boomer palette, you know, like the guitar is, uh, it's overdriven. It's like overdriven just slightly through a very expensive amp and playing like a pentatonic minor scale. Yeah. The organ is like probably DI'd, but also recorded in the room. Like it's, but it's just so anodyne. It's like, yeah, it's nothing you wouldn't have heard in 1965. This is maybe my least favorite type of music, I gotta say. And I don't know whether it's from growing up on Vancouver Island where, like, this is the kind of music that hippies love to make when they start aging out, you know? Um, yeah. But, yeah, this is this is absolutely absolutely my, my least favorite type of uh, music <laughs> to listen to. Yeah, me too. Maybe not my least favorite, but it really... Grinds my gears a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Just... It's almost like a form of folk music mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in that it's like clinging very, like, it's clinging to a tradition that never changes at all. Yeah, it's kind of a good point. Like, 60s rock has become its own folk music because it's just this set of rules that's so rigid and old. Yeah. It's... If you want to make that, you know exactly how to make it. It's like listening to, like... um like like kids in in uh, music school do like a jazz trio you know like like oh it's like we're gonna play hard bop and everybody's gonna take a solo but but yeah it's this uh type of musical expression that's just been calcified and then there are just like these rigid rules around it there should be a new version of a you know like Maybe the 2000s thing of like, I like every kind of music except country and hip hop. Yeah. There needs to be a new thing like that of, I like everything except classic rock. Except classic rock. I don't even think this is classic rock. This is just like, like capital B blues. Like Yeah, true. Van Morrison is interesting because his voice is uh, like approaching cancelable. He's a guy from Northern Ireland. Yeah, He's an Anglican from Northern Ireland, and uh, mm-hmm. a lot of people don't know that. They think he's a black fella. He's on a little bit of like a Billy Crystal uh, jazz man thing here. A <laughs> little bit of a jazz man kind of thing going on. A little bit, yeah. yeah. Blues man. His character, Blues man. <laughs> Bluesman. Van Bluesmanson. Actually, I think um, to Pitchfork's credit, I like that their review of this brings up the album he did early in his career where he just wrote a bunch of shitty songs to get out of a record deal. We're like, this is like the evil version Astral of Weeks. that almost. <laughs> yeah. Hey. Whoa. Um, but uh, it's, well, that album's called contractual obligation session, which this really is like the dark version of that, where that was like clever and understandable. And this is him being bitter and spiteful and thinking he's being clever like, you know, naming the album Latest Record Project Volume 1 is some real uh, irony bro, 75-year-old irony bro stuff here. Yeah, like the title track is just him singing, like, you were listening to, like, my latest record project. But it doesn't... And I guess it's it's not ironic because he's old? or Like, I don't know, man. Yeah, it just doesn't land. Like, if that's what he's going for, it doesn't land. Because you listen to it, and that song is, like, four and a half minutes long. And you're just like... It just seems very lazy, but he's also angry that he has to do anything, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's very glib, and it doesn't need to exist. That's, it's almost kind of, uh, even without the lyrics, these kind of releases are a little bit offensive to me, that they're just kind of going through the motion. Same thing with modern-day Bob Dylan or Neil Young or, like, any of those guys. There are, like, a couple exceptions with people that do some interesting stuff, like, Paul McCartney or like Bowie before he died. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bowie's a good example. But the ones who put out an album knowing that boomers are going to buy it and just doing the absolute minimum, that kind of sucks. Yeah. And to do over two hours of the absolute minimum. <laughs> so we should highlight some of the lyrics. Uh, didn't get very good reviews, and a lot of the reviews focused on the insane lyrics that he keeps pulling out as they should, because like we're saying the music, there's nothing to say about it. So you might as well focus on the absolutely insane lyrics. Yeah. Yeah. Here's a song called the long con. I'm a targeted individual. Got caught up in a long con. Four judges screwed me over, backed me up against the wall. Tried to erase me as a father. 
Tried to get me to go away at Al. Expect me to still pay through the nose. Think I don't even have a choice. So that's about family court. It's so funny, man. Like on an album that's like the thing that's been most publicized is the song about Facebook and the sort of weird shit that sounds anti-Semitic. But I love how there's just these personal bitter songs about I don't want to pay child support. I was looking up his biography, his personal life, and uh, he he had his first kid in like 1972 and then his last one in 2007. Mm-hmm. So if you're still having to pay child support and you're 75, that's kind of your fault. Kind of. In 2009, he knocked up his tour manager, uh, denied paternity of it, and then the baby died at age two, and then the woman died right after of cancer. God, man. And then he went on to record a song about how he hates paying child support. Yeah, everybody's been very unfair to him. Women have treated him badly. Yeah, this is from the same song. Think I don't have a voice. Want me to just go away and give up. Want me to give up the fight. <laughs> but I'm going like to keep on fighting for my life. <laughs> yeah, it does. What does he mean he doesn't have a voice? There are 28 songs of him just babbling. Yeah, you've got like 40 well, albums at this point. All just rambling about whatever you want to say, dude. I guess everybody would be happier if I was dead. Yeah. This actually... Uh, I mean, we'll get to the National Review uh, review of it later, but... This might be some of the peak like conservative grievance culture lyricism of all time, though. Oh yeah, it's it's funny to, that to, it comes from uh, Northern Ireland and not America. You know, it's it's interesting to see like how that's how that idea is kind of spread from the U.S. Yeah, we've talked about that with Canada, sort of with you, like talking about like the Confederate flag and shit. Like, mm-hmm. definitely in the whole like Anglosphere, you get that weird leak of shitty American conservative culture going everywhere. Yeah. Well, they're all British colonies. That's a good point, Alex. They have that neurosis. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. But you know what? It proves that even America can't even be number one anymore at conservative grievance. (laughs) That's right. There's one called Stop Bitching, Do Something. Oh, yeah. Uh, That one's really boring. I listened to that as one of the first ones thinking it was going to be good, but it's pretty bad. What is it about? He just says, stop bitching, stop bitching right now. Put up or shut up. Over and over and over. And it seems like he's kind of bitching. Yeah, it doesn't get specific enough to be funny. Maybe he's... Maybe really, he's doing nothing but bitching. Maybe it's directed at himself. Maybe he's, like, looking at himself in the mirror and his palm is hitting his forehead and he's saying, stop it, Van, stop it. You're being stupid. No one likes this. <laughs> yeah, that'll be the music video. There's one called Western Man. Western man has no plan since he became complacent, stopped believing in himself, let others steal his rewards while he was dreaming. While he was dreaming, others were scheming, doing deals behind his back. Now Western man is adrift and under attack. What happened in between? There's a great um, rap genius annotation when it says, while he was dreaming, others were scheming. The word others is highlighted and the annotation is possibly the Jews, Illuminati, Satanists, Freemasons, <laughs> reptilians, Hollywood, pedophile elites, shape-shifting, interdimensional clockwork elves, etc. <laughs> Sounds a little bit like the stabbed in the back myth mm-hmm. in Weimar, Germany. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no charitable way to read that line and not have it be insanely racist or just off the wall like while western man was dreaming others were scheming who are these others like how could you possibly tell us who you mean by that and not have it be something insanely racist people who aren't western you know their inferior brains just cause them to scheme they're scheming they're rubbing their hands together like flies the horse has bolted from the stables lunatics have taken over the farm caretakers have taken over the main house clandestine meetings in the forest Caretakers have taken over the main house. Yeah, that's not good. Seems like, I I guess he's referring to the White House or like, I don't know what he's talking about there, but it seems very Freudian. Mm -hmm. Like uh, he has caretakers in his house because he's 75. Yeah, this is probably most of the people he's interacting with are servants of some kind. That's kind of verging on the um, like the Acapinti type song we recorded with Will, you know. Nurses lie. Nurses lie. Doctors lie. (laughs) They try and make me take my pills. I don't want to take my pills. I just want to be free. 
they they limited my time on Facebook. They, they said it was making they said it was making me angry. Yeah, that's what caused him to write the Facebook. Just yell and repeat myself over yeah. and over again. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a great irony of this album too. That there's a lot of like anti-media songs, like they're controlling you and they you know they lie. But everything he's saying is sort of just regurgitating media talking points from shit like Fox News, right? Yeah, well, he means uh, he means the media with like triple parentheses around it. Yeah, exactly. He actually had a tweet addressing that. This song called They Own the Media, which uh, got a little bit of heat because who's they? Who owns the media? Uh, they tell us that ignorance is bliss. I guess by those that control the media, it is. They own the media. They control the stories we are told. If you ever try to go against them, you will be ignored. Ignored? Ignored. Not like silenced or censored, just <laughs> murdered. Ignored. That's pretty yeah. timid. That's kind of, uh, that's pretty apt, I guess. Pretty yeah. self-aware. But, uh. Van Morrison tweeted earlier today, actually, for the avoidance of doubt, the they in they own the media refers to Boris Johnson's UK government. Does the conservative government really have that strong of a grip on media? Like there's plenty of fucking conservative British media, but I'm not sure that all of British media is in lockstep behind the conservative government, right? That's what they default to, but I think he's mad at the media for like not being fully anti-lockdown. I guess. Like for not completely yeah. going to the right fringe. And he thinks it uh, it's Boris Johnson preventing the media from saying COVID isn't real. And not that like they're not going to say that because that's a very small amount of people that believe it. Yeah, it's a, one of the most delusional songs on here. Really insane way to think about the world. But there was one positive review for it from the National Review. They absolutely loved it. They sure did. A pop genius's political poetry sets the record straight. Van Morrison's new three LP album. Three LP (laughs) album. Yeah, two discs, three LPs. Is it really that long? God damn. Yeah, it's over two hours, dude. Why is it three LPs when it's two hours, eight minutes? Because what you can get forty minutes per LP, so eighty minutes is only two. So yeah, two hours is three. You know. Oh, I guess if you're putting it on vinyl, just put it on a CD. Put you it on did. a Pono. <laughs> yeah, Van Morrison should make his own Pono. I would love to see that. That would be amazing. But instead of being the high audio fidelity one, it's just the conservative uh, MP3 player. <laughs> yeah, uh, very lossy. 128 kilobits per second. You yeah. don't need anything more. It's decadent. Yeah. Also, your hearing is shut, so it's not like you're going to get those rich low lows or high highs. You just need like tinny sort of mid-range shit. So National Review says his three LP album is so radical, so out of fashion, it's ahead of fashion, that it also recalls the most widely celebrated album from exactly 40 years ago, The Clash's punk reggae rap Lollapalooza, their triple LP Sandinista. It does no such thing. Sandinista, all the songs on Sandinista sound... I mean, there's one good album inside of Sandinista, like one banger clash album. Yeah, that's the truth. But I, you know, like, Sandinista runs all over the map sonically. Yeah, sonically it's the opposite of this. They're trying the weirdest shit of their career and failing at some of it. Yeah, exactly. Just like weird dub outtakes and stuff. Yeah, children's choirs, like an incredible cover of Police on My Back, like... They're just throwing everything they have at that album. And Van is, like, throwing... I, I mean, like, yeah, he probably just told the session musicians, like, write a write a fast one, write a slow one, uh, a, write one with organ in it. Uh, do, do you have lyrics, Van? Yeah, sure, I have lyrics. Okay, are we done? Great. <laughs> Can I go home now? Yes. It's also really cool that he says, besides, no one listens to Sandinista anymore. It's like... Dude, is anyone going to listen to this Van Morrison album in 40 years? Absolutely not. No one's listening not. to it now. Yeah, I bet. Exactly. Yeah. I would bet you. We're the only per- people listening to it now. Many, many times more people will have listened to Sandinista by the end of this year than have listened to this Van Morrison album. Yeah. Like, if you go to Van Morrison's uh, Spotify, the new songs can't crack, like, the top list of songs people are listening to, you know? It's all, like, Brown Eyed Girl and all the classic shit. Like, no one is listening to this. 
I can't even wrap my head around that, being a National Review guy and thinking, like, an album from 1981, no one's listening to that now. Everybody's moved beyond that. But you're, you're a conservative. You write for the National Review. Everything the National Review has ever supported looks like shit 40 years later. Yeah, yeah, but... Segregation <laughs> and apartheid and all that yeah. shit. Like, if, if that's the standard we're using for things, like, uh, is this looked uh, looked upon fondly 40 years later? I, every single time they lose. I think that's the trick of, if you want to write at the National Review, you have to jingle those keys in front of your own eyes until you're, they roll back in your skull and you're just like, I got it, Sandinista. And you start typing. You go into a fugue state and you start typing this shit. Morrison knows that the emotional turmoil we've suffered over the past year through media compliance and pseudoscience, that's what it was, requires ethical and aesthetic reassessment. And like Michael Jackson's inspiring man in the mirror, Morrison starts with himself. Okay, what? Man, that's some pitchfork-level purple prose. Yeah. Michael Jackson didn't assess himself. He certainly did not. One, that's a bad song. And two, he kept raping children. (laughs) So whatever introspection he did, I I don't think you should use that as a comparison. It gets even better when they compare, like, later on in this this article, they compare Van Morrison to, like, uh, one of his songs is, like, a rebuttal to Adorno, which is funny to me. (laughs) Yeah, his song about how Facebook is, is bad is a rebuttal to Adorno. Yeah. There's a great paragraph here, and keep in mind that the guy who wrote this, Armand White, is a black man. On Thank God for the Blues, Morrison's Blues Tense goes, Sing it for me, sing it for you, sing it for the people who feel the way that I do, simplifying his blues politics into the distinct expression of formerly marginalized people. His natural empathy makes up for the fact that those people now have been gulled into mistaking their period of widest acceptance, visibility, and power for a moment of neglect. Through the blues, Morrison refers to the consciousness of spiritually motivated black people who thought and felt for themselves and made art about it. So he's basically saying that uh, Van Morrison is the only one keeping alive the true spirit of black music. That's truly insane, man. That's, oh man. Politically, this is the most insane paragraph, I think. Mm -hmm. Wait a minute. Their period of widest acceptance, visibility, and power for a moment of neglect? I don't. I don't think people had that much power back then. <laughs> I think it was actually. No, he's pretty saying good. right now. He's saying oh, now. right now. He's oh, saying okay. that like okay. minorities have more visibility than ever. Ah, uh, I see. Which that's see. true, but I don't think anyone's seeing it as a moment of neglect. It's more like it should have always been this way. So how do we permanently create a system that actually everyone gives gives everyone a chance? Right? Like it's a very glib way to uh, kind of talk shit on his own people and then be like Van Morrison is keeping alive that tradition better than black people. That's insane, man. Yeah. Like it just evinces like a very fundamental misunderstanding of basic ideas of social justice. Like minorities have such wide acceptance and visibility right now. Why are they mad? You know, Jesus Christ, dude. You can say that about any time you could pick like Thurgood Marshall or like Duke Mm -hmm. Ellington. Any period of time, really, after, like, World War II, you could point to it and say, look, they're very visible. Why are they complaining? Any point in history, anytime, anywhere, pretty much. Sharpest of all is why are you on Facebook? Here, Morrison breaks down social media interdependence and insecurity. It's a question few dare ask. Are you looking for a scapegoat to blame? Are you a failure again? Is very Morrissey. That's the second time he brings up Morrissey in this, which I guess just means it's racist. Yeah, maybe he started listening to, to, yeah, he started listening to Morrissey once he wore that, uh, shit, what's the name of that British political party that he wore the pin of on TV? Uh, UKIP. No, oh, I don't think it was UKIP. It was something even more like obscure. English Defense League. One of those things. Was it just like, uh, that's like, that's probably when the author started being like, oh, I like this guy. Was when uh, Morrissey wore his Oswald Mosley t-shirt. Cardi B, Adele, Ed Sheeran, and Shawn Mendes won't ask. The question is, why are you on Facebook? Since they depend on social media. <laughs> oh my God. So, That's so cool. 
The Beach Boys won't tell you the truth. Don't <laughs> go to the monkeys if you want to know the truth. Why won't Cardi B denounce Facebook? <laughs> yeah. Why won't Weird also, Al Yankovic like, uh, denounce TikTok? There's no analysis in that song. It's just, why are you on Facebook? Did you miss your 15 minutes of fame? Or do you not have any shame? Or is it some kind of twisted game? That's like, like Linkin Park style rhyming. Yeah, it's fill in the blank shit. Free association. Get a life. Is it that empty and sad? Yeah, it's ultimately like I, just another personal bitterness song, yeah. as most of the songs on the album are. I like... It, I, oh, man. It's like he, he's just imagining someone in his head who's like someone who's addicted to social media. <laughs> like, who's on Facebook? Who are you talking about? And also, he makes the uh, accusation, why do you need secondhand friends? It's like people... Facebook... Even more so than other social networks, you just talk to like your relatives or whatever, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't he's, know that you really have secondhand friends. It's just people you know. Well, maybe he's That's challenging. That's the only reason anyone knows that. He's challenging his own audience, who are all uh, getting their brains smoothed out by being on Facebook. Oh man. Yeah, maybe we need to be like seventy-five in order to really feel the political weight of this song. Yeah, this maybe this song isn't for us, you know. Um. I do, I do like the reviewer's take on the long con, which we already established uh, was about uh, family court and paying child support. And uh, he says, the song's intellectual burden could as well have been sung by Lead Belly swinging his prison gang sledgehammer. <laughs> God. <laughs> yeah, yet again. Being like, uh, it's like those pictures of uh, Marx and Engels and Lennon and Mao. Yeah. But it's uh, Lead Belly and Robert Johnson and uh, Louis Armstrong and Van Morrison. <laughs> and Van Morrison, yeah. <laughs> Morrison realizes pop is ephemeral, and that's what makes this album's political and artistic stance so brave. It's of the moment, and in this moment, mainstream media have become almost completely unreliable, a tool of secret class war, where empowered people feel entitled to tell the rest of the world how to live. Wow. Cool, dude. Morrison's radical artistry angers leftist reviewers because he is clearly he clearly is not lost in their world of white liberal blues fetishism and political condescension. Uh, I, I don't understand uh, uh, white liberal blues fetishism. I would say this is a prime example of uh, white blues fetishism. <laughs> yeah, album. absolutely. Is who is he talking about? Liberals? They, liberals don't like blues. That makes no sense. No, like old shitty conservatives love blues, and they especially love like uh, this type of blues. Yeah, like Eric yeah, Clapton I would say it's or something. Majority conservative. You've got guys like Jeff Tiedrich, for sure. Uh, like lib blues boomers. But I would say probably most of them vote for Trump just by virtue of it being like a majority white, majority old demographic. I want to see uh, voting records for every presidential election of people who bought Jerry Lee Lewis's Great Balls of Fire in the 70s. How do they vote now? <laughs> probably for Trump because he's also accused of doing things to 13-year-olds. The genius who made Astral Weeks. Who can say uh, again? I think that album's overrated. I think it's a good album, though. I think it's I don't know a good that album. it's like a ten out of ten classic, but it's solid. It's a little low energy for me. Who can sing the phone book and still be compelling? Nope. Feels betrayed by all those who claim to care about art and freedom, but who really simply are sheeple. <laughs> God, unironically writing the word sheeple, sheeple. in the national as like review. a middle aged man in the yeah in the national review in twenty twenty one as a middle aged man. It's oh. almost as good as tweeps. Semi-auticians everywhere should praise the title track alone, except they're too busy teaching Marxism along with semiotics. <laughs> that, Man, wow, that could be the best section there. In here. My favorite. They're so busy teaching all the Marxism that they can't <laughs> teach semiotics. My favorite, um, my favorite paragraph is coming up, which is. Uh, when Morrison says, "Follow the media," what's their agenda? How do they frame it? How do they name it? He is opposing everything Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno say about the culture industry in Dialectical Enlightenment. <laughs> <laughs> How so? Uh, 
Well, he's, he, it goes on to say, but he's now just ignored in order to facilitate the social justice zealots in an industry that prefers the lost childish warblings of Billie Eilish and worse, the political preening of Taylor Swift. I, there's so much going on in that paragraph that's okay. Yeah, it's incredible. There's nothing political about Taylor Swift's music whatsoever. The most political she's ever gotten is saying to vote for a Democrat in Tennessee during an election, right? Yeah, yeah. Anytime a celebrity says anything, it's political preening. Like they're so self-important and virtue signaling. Even if they like share a meme on Instagram that says "Vote for Joe Biden." Why are you forcing <laughs> your ideology on me? Yeah. <laughs> but, I, but then when I, Van Morrison makes an album over two hours long about this shit, it's like, ah, oh, how refreshing. You yeah, know? it's so great. Yeah. It's so great to hear a, a new voice uh, so fight, fighting. Like, like Van Morrison is the fucking lone soldier against the, uh, the just iron wave of the Frankfurt School ideology. Yeah, I that, think that thinks, sense in particular is like how, as an editor, how do you not say exactly what Alex said? Of just be like, how so? Like, elaborate on that, please. Yeah. <laughs> please he seems explain. to be implying that Horkheimer and Adorno, their idea was you should trust the media no matter what. <laughs> the media is always right, and they were socialists. Mm-hmm. They were anti-capital. They they were Marxists. Yes, yes, so they why, were. <laughs> they were talking about the media in a capitalist system. I. Yeah. It's just incoherent. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. And uh, calling Billie Eilish childish is pretty funny. (laughs) This literal child is a big single was when she was like 16 or 17. Yeah. 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 Uh, What do you want? You want her to do an aging treatment? Go in a tanning bed? It's incredible that these Backstreet Boys don't have any critique of the Clinton regime. (laughs) They've been given this massive platform, and yet they have nothing to say about Clinton. BTS are cultural Marxists in every sense of the word. <laughs> I, th- I just can't get—I can't get over the fact that he got paid to write this. It's—it's it's amazing. <laughs> like it's also n- great here. Like uh, no one is trying. I feel like no one is trying. Like this is just a bizarre, like um, a bizarre psychotic manifestation of like. Uh, of, of our current moment where you have a very old, very rich man makes a record where he doesn't try very hard. And then a writer for the national review reviews it in a completely weird and lazy sort of dribbling way. And, and then that's, there it is. There's the cultural product and the cultural commentary. <laughs> yeah. And he's a, uh, there's another paragraph where he's like, Morrison's ideological detractors at a bunch of places, but including Pitchfork, won't admit that the album is very easy listening. And then you look at the Pitchfork one, and they're very generous saying that it's intermittently lovely, which I think <laughs> is about the nicest thing you can say about that album. Like, mm-hmm. I guess it's easy listening. Like you're listening. saying he's so lazy. He's just like, those fucking Marxists at Pitchfork couldn't bring themselves to say how great this album is. And I think they almost strained to try to like it. It's not discordant. I guess that's all they really want. If you're a reactionary and you want art, you want it to be like uh, dinner music, but the lyrics to be get off Facebook, the media is lying to you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would love to know who is like the biggest fan of this album. Because you're right. It's got to be someone who's like 75 also. And they're just sitting down to dinner to listen to it and... I don't know, but is that person even paying attention to the political content? It's such a weird album. I don't, I think everyone's Uh, doing it performatively. I mean, I'm sure there are Van Morrison freaks who own all 40 Van Morrison albums where he plays a G and a C chord and complains about the same shit in his fake voice. But uh, I think most of the people paying attention to this, like Armin White, they're doing a performance. Armin White. Because they're so overjoyed when uh, any artist does anything conservative that they're like this is transcendent mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. armin white basically has to write this review you know i can imagine a type of fan of this record which is like someone like a boomer like 75 year old who's just internet literate enough to know that this exists you know because yeah they're not, it's not like they're going to the record store or whatever, right? So they have to be internet literate enough to know that this exists. So they're clued into some of the things he's talking about. They probably feel the same way. And then they just force it on their family. They'll just like, 
you know, call their son up and be like, you got to listen to the new Van Morrison. It's amazing. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a generational experience for boomers. Like, uh, uh, downloading Kid A songs on file sharing networks before Kid A came out. That's how they feel right now. Like, oh man, this is a fucking zeitgeist <laughs> defining album. You got to check it out. The shit yeah. he says about Facebook, everyone's been too scared yeah. to say it. Exactly. Anyway, this reminded us reminded us of some other National Review cultural criticism. Uh, there's an article from 2006 called Rockin' the Right. That's the 50 greatest conservative rock songs. And it's uh, it's pretty bad. It's the same kind of thing where like any any lyric that suggests conservatism automatically is uh, is conservative, and they love it. They think it's profound. Yeah, the only song on this list we touched on before is the only one that they're basically right about, which is uh, "Sympathy for the Devil" by the Rolling Stones. We talked with Will about that. And that song, mm-hmm. I think, uh, genuinely qualifies as conservative. Yeah. Because he's talking about how the assassination of the Romanovs was evil. Yeah. Which, no, it wasn't. No, yeah, it was actually, it actually ruled. It was actually totally they were fucking all sweet. super annoying. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe the girls were normal, but... They got, they got Wouldn't It Be Nice on here as a pro-abstinence and pro-marriage song, which... <laughs> I don't know if you <laughs> can... a stretch necessarily see that as like a conservative screed or like just brian wilson being uh, you know just being very honest about himself and what a weird it doesn't say you're not going to have premarital sex in that song no it says uh we could be married and then we'll be happy uh and conservatives think sex is the only thing that's going to make you happy because they're little freaks yeah, actually, okay, I found one. I would agree that the Revolution by the Beatles is, uh, well, not like capital C conservative, is kind of a fucking reactionary dog shit song. I was watching a documentary about um, the tail end of the cult- Cultural Revo- Revolution. It's it's amazing. It's this movie called uh, How Yukon Moved the Mountains, and it's uh, 12 hours long, and it is just... Uh, incredible footage of post-cultural revolution China in like very small, quiet scenes, like an hour in a fishing village. And everybody talks about like what their lives were like before and what they do now. Uh, Stuff like that. It's great. But I was thinking about the Beatles song revolution and how much I hated it today. Um, Specifically, if you go. The single version I like. I mean, musically it's fine, but the chairman Mao line, I'm just like, can shut up, guys. Take a seat. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just if John Lennon had moved to China during the Cultural Revolution, one, the FBI wouldn't have been able to track him. Two, he wouldn't have gotten killed by that guy. Exactly. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, and they're and they're saying uh, Chairman Mao is bad. You know, you're, you're not going to be able to. You're not going to make it with anyone if you're carrying pictures of Chairman Mao. If you but, go carrying pictures of John F. Kennedy. <laughs> exactly. You go carrying pictures of Alan Dulles. Uh, yeah, there we go. Stay Together for the Kids by Blink-182. Oh, man, that's such a stretch. <laughs> God damn. Don't number one on the list we should point out is uh, Won't Get Fooled Again by The Who. Yeah. I guess just because conservatives won't get fooled again. They're always getting it, fooled, though. Yeah, that song's about a generic revolution. I'm not even sure what they were talking about. Because it's not like Pete Townsend was involved with, like, the Black Panthers or the Weathermen or something. He was just sort of absentmindedly reading the newspaper. Yeah. Sweet Home Alabama's at number four, I guess because it's about Alabama, which is conservative. Yeah, totally. I think they're missing the point of 20th Century Man, too, by the Kinks. I'm pretty sure that song is, like, like all Kinks songs, just, like, deeply, poisonously ironic. Yeah, absolutely. Small Town by John Mellencamp. Oh, a, God. A Berkian rocker. Yeah, I guess so. Oh, it's a horrible yeah. song. It's like a parody of John Mellencamp. Okay, I got Like it. an SNL <laughs> sketch of what a John Mellencamp song is. It's true. He says he's from a small town 500 times and then goes on to endorse Michael Bloomberg. 
That that John Mellencamp song is to John Mellencamp what John Mellencamp is to Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, just distilling it down further and further until it's so potent. Yeah, <laughs> it's almost modern country. Small town truck, small town truck, small town truck. Bud Light, Bud Light, Bud Light. <laughs> Refining. The oh message. wait, look, they put the Battle of Evermore by Led Zeppelin on here, mm. and justified it as. The lyrics are straight out of Robert Plant's Middle Earth period. There are lines about ring wraiths and magic runes. But for a song released in 1971, <laughs> it's hard to miss the Cold War metaphor. The tyrant's face is red. That's a big stretch there. That's a, that's that's a, a, that's a, a huge stretch. Some fucking Q-drop shit. That's... <laughs> Who was premiere in 71? Brezhnev? Yeah. Or Andropov. Was yeah. he red? Yeah. None of them were really red. No. But communism was red in general. I like how he takes a very common color and is like, this is the key to the song. Whereas like he overlooks these very specific proper nouns like ring wraith and yeah, magic you know rune. What, fuck, you know what else is red? <laughs> the eye of Sauron. Like, give me a break. Yeah, exactly. Uh, one thing they do get right, though, uh, I have to give it to them, and it sucks, is uh, The Trees by Rush from Neil Peart's uh, Ayn Rand period. <laughs> Yeah, fair enough there. Yeah, yeah that's uh, the music's not bad, but the lyrics are just very stupid. They regretted that stuff later. They sure did. The music's great. I think by the end of his life, he was just like a standard lib. Yeah, yeah. Wind of Change by the Scorpions. <laughs> now that's uh, that was like a CIA plot, wasn't it? That's the story. Yeah, yeah. That song is extremely, still extremely popular. And uh, if you're riding in a taxi cab in the Eastern Bloc and they put it on the classic rock station, it'll come on. I'm looking at a song called Neighborhood Bully here by Bob Dylan, and it says it was a pro-Israel song released in 1983. I've never heard this or of it. Me neither. That's like right around his Christian phase, so yeah. I guess says, that makes sense. It says, uh, pro-Israel song released in 1983, two years after the bombing of Iraq's nuclear reactor. This ironic number could be a theme for the Bush Doctrine. And then it quotes the lyrics. He was he destroyed a bomb factory. No one was glad, but uh, the bombs were meant for him. He was supposed to feel bad. He's the neighborhood bully. Wake Up Little Susie by the Everly Brothers. Oh, really? Smash smashed it in 1957, back when high school social pressures were rather different from what they have become. We fell asleep, our goose is cooked, our reputation is shot. So they're saying it's good that your reputation would be shot if you had sex in high school? Like you should be shamed, you should have a scarlet letter in front of the whole town? <laughs> Man... As the list goes on, they're really struggling to think of more. Like number 48 is, why don't you get a job by the offspring? And the only, the one sentence write up is, the lyrics aren't exactly Shakespearean, but they're refreshingly blunt and they capture a motive force behind welfare reform. <laughs> I don't think Heroes by David Bowie is a conservative song. I just don't think it is. That doesn't make sense. Really. It doesn't make sense. I think what happened with that song, if I remember, is that, you know, during that whole, uh, especially Heroes and Low and a little bit with Lodger during that whole triptych that he was making, he was creatively exhausted. And um, he kind of like reduced a lot of his lyrics to these like almost like tone poems, you know, and he wrote a lot of them just on the spot. And I, yeah. and I think the lyrics for that song were written because like he was having writer's block in the studio. Um, he, he was drinking really heavily and he took a walk out by the wall, like where like Hans's studios was close to the wall. He took a walk out by the wall and then, uh, and then like, or no, sorry, he saw Eno and uh, a woman walking by the wall through the window of the studio. He, and, and he was like, Oh, I'm going to write a song about that. Like, <laughs> Like literally just like that album reminds me of right, Easter. Yeah. Yeah. What's right in front of him. Yeah. Just writing what you see. Yeah. And Alex, you're right. It does like flirt with, um, sort of like East German chic, you know, like he did the whole soundtrack for that Christian F movie. Um, I don't know. This, this list is stupid. <laughs> it makes me miss yeah. East Germany. Yeah. DDR was great. Her decade. What percentage of songs on this list are not a massive stretch? 
There's maybe five to ten songs on here that are like, all right, I get it. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying to find. I can't drive fifty-five. Maybe is kind of conservative. I guess. Uh, Wonderful by Everclear. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Oh, dude. That's just about divorce. I like the like. No one should ever get divorced is like the conservative position, apparently, according to multiple songs on this list. Yeah, because the kids don't like it. If your kid doesn't want you to get divorced, you shouldn't, no matter what. Yeah, the kid, that's the conservative position. The kid should choose whether the parents can get divorced. Or if there's two parents who don't want to get divorced and the kid says that he wants them to, they have to get divorced. I want two Christmases. Yeah. <laughs> Two Christmases. Yes. That's a smart conservative kid. I want the best return on my investment as a family member, so I want to maximize the number of Christmases. And by getting more and more stuff and accumulating that wealth, someday he can become a landlord perhaps, you know, get some uh, some assets that are going to keep growing in value. Get some of that passive income. Yeah. Divorce is sort of like privatizing a family. Mm-hmm. Turning them all into individuals. In competition. Yeah, freeing them from the, the oppressive uh, Stalinist chains of the family unit. Yeah, the nuclear family isn't competitive enough. And that's why America's fallen behind. There's Marriage rates are too high, actually. <laughs> the guy who, the guy wrote, who wrote, wrote this list, are you on his Twitter? No, I'm not. I was going to say that the guy who wrote this list is the director of the Dow Journalism Program. <laughs> At Hillsdale <laughs> College, like I, I would love to see what kind of great journalistic minds have come out of the Dow Chemical Journalism Program. I went to his Twitter, and the first thing I saw was him retweeting a picture of William F. Buckley socks. <laughs> God with damn, William that's F. Buckley's so face lame. Jesus fucking Christ, so man. cool. Oh man, National Review type guys love having wacky socks. George H. W. Bush would do that. He would have crazy socks while he was uh, just inwardly smiling about all the presidents he had killed. Who is the National Review's actual audience in 2021? Like, it's pseudo-intellectual. Like, it's too boring and shitty for most people to want to read it, but it's not smart enough for anyone smart to want to read it. And it's the like kind of guys who write for it are posting uh, these kind of socks, like, man, it's Harper's for guys who never had sex in college. Yeah, I guess that's right. It must be Gulf state money or something. It has to be. No one's reading it. Well, I guess Van Morrison would encourage us to look behind the scenes. Who's really pulling the strings at the national review. It isn't me and you, you know, who controls the media looking at the national review. I think it's Irish Catholics. Yeah. It's a uh, Dow Chemical. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I'm glad uh, Van Morrison found his niche getting reviewed there. I think if he really wants to lean into making songs, being angry about Facebook and stuff, he should just start writing for the National Review. And uh, he could have a, a fruitful career for the you know waning days of his life. I agree. I mean, he won't have to put session musicians together and uh he won't have to record any more songs he can just uh just kind of dribble his thoughts out there get mike huckabee on bass <laughs> ted nugent yeah. on guitar put a band together yeah how come there's no conservative supergroup? that's such an obvious idea it's never been done i had an idea it'll be too like, epic i had an idea a couple of years ago when i was thinking about like these kind of transnational figures that um they're not necessarily conservative. They're more like international, but like transnational figures that pop up and always cause chaos. And I was thinking specifically of uh, Saakashvili, the former Georgian president who then popped up in yeah in Ukraine. He lived in Brooklyn for a long time. Uh, I think his son still lives in Brooklyn. Um, but the way to sort of protect the world from those people is to create a talent agency because they're all just like obsessed with sort of projecting whatever kind of media image, create a talent agency and make a band out of all of them and have them tour to all the countries that they want to be adored in. But they don't actually have any political, uh, uh, you know, there's no, there's no political influence there. They're just performing. But they need to have a political title to make them feel like they're important. We'd call them the ambassadors. Yeah. <laughs> the, the prime minister. The special envoy. That's the name of the band. All right. Well, 
guess we thought of a bunch of career advice for a bunch of conservatives here. So if anything, we're the entrepreneurs really coming up with ways to innovate in the conservative uh, think sphere. Yeah, we're think imagining so I over see, here. I want to see uh, Saakashvili start a band. I want to see Van Morrison writing for the National Review. I want to see a conservative supergroup. Uh, I want to see this him time suckish my penis. <laughs> whoa. Hey, whoa. Whoa. I'm sorry, that was foul. Mm-hmm.